This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast. We are in episode four of our Build Your Bow series. We wrapped up last week with episode three with PJ, and he did everything timing he did everything, D loops, peep sites, and all of the all of the work like that to get your bow set up. I am now joined by Caleb Sorrels of Bear Archery, and we talk about paper tuning. So, guys, stay right here, tuned in, and Caleb's going to teach us all about paper tuning. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting One Hundred and One Podcast where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. Guys, there's one fabric that if you're not wearing, you absolutely should be. It's a magic fabric. It changes everything about the way you layer, everything about the way you dress, everything about the way you hunt, and that is merino wool. I couldn't even begin to tell you all of the benefits of merino wool, and I'm going to miss some for sure. But guys, whether it's summer or whether it's winter, uh, this is going to keep you cool in the in the summer. It's moisture wicking. It's going to pull the moisture away from your body, but it's also going to hold your heat in the winter. It is antimicrobial. It doesn't smell. It doesn't hold scent like other fabrics does. So if you're out on a five-day hunt, you don't have access to a washer, this is not going to hold your scent. It's not going to to get stinky and nasty. Um, it's also uh, quick drying. Um, you can hang this up in your tent. You can hang it up uh, on a clothesline. It's going to dry really quick. But the coolest part about Merino, in my opinion, is that when it gets wet, it still maintains it still maintains its warmth properties. So if there's a light rain or a snow and this gets wet, it's still going to keep me warm. There's no itch. There's it's it's non-allergenic. It's an amazing, an amazing fabric. Minus thirty three. I stumbled upon minus 33 by accident i was on backcountry.com and they were having a blowout sale i needed some new merino for a hunt that was coming up and so i i dove in i bought it and when i got it it was the softest best merino i have ever felt in my entire life i've not worn anything but minus 33 socks for everyday life whether i'm hunting hiking or just you know out for the day i haven't worn anything but minus 33 socks in over a year and a half Every single day I'm wearing their underwear. 
every single time I'm out hunting, whether it's a hundred or whether it's five, I'm wearing some sort of beanie to cover up my chrome dome and to keep that covered up and warm uh, or cool, whether if it's in the summer. But also, um, that UV protectant, I like to wear it in the summer. Um, guys, minus 33 does Merino, in my opinion, better than anybody else does it. Go check out minus 33 for all your Merino wool. And if you haven't ever tried Merino, guys, you are missing out. It will change the way you layer. It will change the way you hunt. Go check out Merino wool and go check out minus 33. So we uh, wrapped up last week with PJ. And we basically just set our rest to 13 sixteenths. Um, first off, is there any bows that you have found or is there any brand or is there any reason why 13 sixteenths doesn't work? Um, I've definitely had bows that they lean towards three quarters of an inch. You know, it's just where the center shot ends up being for a particular model. Um, 13 sixteenths is a good starting point. Um, it's a, gr a great starting point for 90% of the bows out on the market, but there are some different variances. I mean, riser thickness, where the cam tracks are, you know, the load on the cable guard. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into center shot that, you know, 13 sixteenths is a great place to start, see where it goes through paper and then adjust from there. Yeah. So once we have it at 13 sixteenths, mm -hmm. once we have, you know, got everything set up to where, should be a good starting point. What are the first yep. steps you got to take? You know, we've got, we've got our, our rest mounted. We've got a D loop tied on. What are the first steps you're taking to get that bow to shoot good? So where PJ left off, um, you have everything leveled, your arrows level, you're in center shot and you're ready to take it to the paper. Um, you take the arrows that you've built, you fire it through and in a perfect world, you get a bolt hole. You don't have a tear high, low, left, right to the moon etc. So if that's the case, then you're ready for the next step, which is fine tuning and sighting in and making sure everything is level as far as third axis, etc. I don't know if PJ got into third axis at all. Maybe, maybe not. Dylan, you have No, to. he did not. Okay. So yeah, that would be another, another step down the road. But um, in a perfect world, you get a bullet hole, then you go into fine tuning and perfect world, you're ready to go. Now there's a whole plethora of situations that are more than likely going to happen depending on arrow build, um, the particular bow. I mean, every bow is different. So there's a lot of hypotheticals that we could go down rabbit holes there too. So now you are assuming that the arrow spine is correct. You're assuming that that person you know, already has an arrow built for that setup. Um, yeah. So, first question is, do you just trust the arrow charts? <laughs> do you just look at, you know, a gold no. tip arrow chart, a victory arrow chart, an eastern arrow chart, and say, all right, I need a 340 spine arrow, cut it to 27 and a half, screw it in, start tuning? Or what steps do you take there to find the right arrow to even get you on track to start tuning the bow? Yeah, so... When we're talking arrow spines and arrow charts, that is assuming, and there's a number of arrow charts out there, um, you know, for years back before kind of where we're at, the Carbon Express arrow chart was awesome because it would take into account point weight, aggressive cam versus a soft cam. It would take in, yep. you know, uh, 
arrow length. I mean, it, it had a point system that you would get an adjusted number that you would go off of rather than just poundage and draw length. And even draw length, it, it, you really want to look at arrow length um, because like the spine of an arrow is tested on a 28 inch span. So if you're shooting an arrow that's longer than 28 inches, inherently you're going to have a weaker arrow than what the spine is on the, on the label. So there's a lot of hypotheticals and you really got to do some investigating in your own setup and your own build essentially before you start going down the rabbit hole of what arrow to even buy. So, right. Um, and you know, point weight's one thing too, if we can talk about the inverse and weight on the rear of the arrow, you know, weight on the rear of the arrow actually makes the arrow stiffer dynamically, just like the point weight makes the arrow weaker dynamically. So there's a lot that goes into it. You know, if you're building your own arrows, especially because if you're at an arrow wrap, big veins and, some more weight on the rear of that arrow. I mean, you're going to have a stiffer arrow than the label says or what the spine charts are going to tell you as well. So there's a lot of attributes and a lot of things you got to look at in considering what arrow, you know, you're going to shoot through this bow. Which is why, which is why before I ever start paper tuning, I actually take and I'm going to weigh my wrap and my veins out and then I'll take electrical tape and, and put that amount of tape on the back of the arrow. That way, you know, I'm not getting a perfect bullet hole, and then I throw my wraps and veins on, all of a sudden I'm too stiff. Right. Um, right. So question, somebody goes to shoot their bow through paper. Mm-hmm. And like, at what point is it just like, well, okay, how, how do you know if you're going to revisit the arrow build or if you're going to start the tuning process? You know what I mean? Yeah, and there's a lot of thought processes behind this, this particular question too. Um, you know, there's some really renowned shooters and really, you know, accomplished bow hunters that say, I'm going to build my arrow and then tune the bow to that. You know, obviously staying within the parameters of what a good arrow build for that draw length and poundage would be. But, you know, there's a lot of guys that they build the arrow and then tune the bow to it. And with a lot of the systems that are out there, you know, we can get away with that because there's so many things that you can do to micro tune and macro tune to get those arrows shooting bullet holes and bear shafts together with fletched arrows. So there's in, in my opinion, and the way that I have done it in the last five to 10 years, especially for hunting arrows is I build my hunting arrows for what I want them to be and then tune my bows to them. Gotcha. So you're going off, you know, say that you're looking at this and, and, you know, you're, you're planning an elk hunt, so you want to build a little bigger, a little heavier, harder-hitting harder arrow. So you've got, yep. you know, say a 300 spine with 200 grains out front. So that way you know, okay, yep. I want to hit 550 total arrow weight, or I want to hit mm-hmm. 475, I want to hit 515, whatever it is. So you're going to build right. that arrow how you want it, and then you're going to tune that bow to shoot that yep. arrow. Yep. Gotcha. Yep, and you're going to keep in mind the 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 span of the arrow, so the draw like the length of the arrow, but then also, you know, those attributes. So 200 grains in the front of the arrow, inherently you're going to have to shoot a stiffer arrow than, you know, what a normal hundred grain field point is for that same poundage and draw length of a shooter. So, um, exactly. you know, for me, so if you look at a for spine me specifically, chart, yeah. So if you look at a spine Go chart ahead. and it says what 28 inches and 70 pounds, you need a 350 spine. But if you want to up the weight on the front and go to a you know a 150 rather than a 100, then you need to go to a 300 spine rather than a 350 spine. Right, exactly. 
And inversely, I mean, if you're going to run arrow wraps and big veins, you might look at either cutting those arrows shorter, which is dynamically stiffing the arrow, or, you know, maybe even shooting a lighter spine arrow. If somebody offers like a 375 or a 400, it might work for that same shooter depending on draw length. Yeah. All right. So we've got the arrow we want. We've got the rest set to 13 sixteenths. Yep. What are you, what steps are you taking to get that bow to shoot well? Yeah, I would say the first step, like we talked, is is going to be a paper tune. You know, shoot that bow through paper, see where you're at. You know, in an ideal world, you're going to get a perfect bolt hole. But obviously, there's going to be some different things that probably come in, especially if you're pushing your arrow build one way or another. You know, you start adding point weight and different things. It's going to require some more tuning potentially just because of the amount of energy that you're putting into a stationary weight out there and that rear of the arrow trying to come around that front point weight. So there's going to be some tuning, and the spine of the arrow is going to be a little bit more particular and how you put that the force of your string directly behind that arrow. Now, before we really get into this, are there any differences? Mm -hmm. Are you going to do anything different with limb-driven versus cable-driven versus whisker-biscuit versus, you know, a... Uh, uh, any other number of rests are you going to tune the bow any differently depending on what rest you're shooting so the short answer would be no but depending on the results you might tune those a little bit differently like a, a limb driven drop away rest you might be able to time when that rest is falling which might help with your up and down tears if you have some of those resulting same with like a lizard tongue or a target rest. If you have a weak or a stiff rest, you might be able to play with those to get rid of and alleviate some of those vertical tears once we see the results through paper. Right. All right, so you shoot it through paper. Your first shot is horrendous. Yep. We'll say left and high. So what do you do? Okay. Left and high. So left, or first you want to correct the high. Typically, you want to go up and down first. So with a high tear, first, you can check your timing again. Make sure you're in time because timing is a, a big thing with ups and downs. And then the second one with a high tear, you actually want to bump your rest up or move your knocking point down. So one of those two things would be the first thing to correct that high tear. And then we would address the left and right. And that's really going to depend. I mean, if it's a two-inch tear... You know, there's going to be some, you, you really want to start with your, your cams and get your cams shimmed, and then you can use the other things to micro-tune from there. All right. So that is, that's kind of the, that's going to be the big question of the day is, yeah. A, when do you know to move your rest versus your knocking point? Why would you move one yep. over the other? And then B, you know, at what point have you just went too far with your rest and you need to try something else? Right. Yeah, it's really going to depend on the paper and, and kind of like this hypothetical situation that we've we've thrown out there. Like if it's a two inch tear, um, a two inch tear, you really I would start with your knocking point and move that first, and then fine adjust with your rest. Just because you can get a lot more down range with your knocking point, it's kind of like the macro adjustment versus the micro in your rest. So I would start with the knocking point and then move to that. And then, you know, there's been situations, even the weight on the string that I've seen 
and the amount of speed knocks on the top versus the bottom and how that string is coming through the the power stroke and the influence it's putting on the the, the arrow too which is another rabbit hole entirely but generally you want to start with the knocking point and then move to the rest and then once you move that knocking point make sure you re-level and then shoot it again see where you're at and if you've made a big improvement then you can micro adjust if not then you might go back to the knock and move it again okay so question if i move so say i'm level if i move the mm -hmm. knocking point up or down you said make sure you're level again so then i'm going to have to move yep. the rest as well Correct. Yeah. You want to move that as a unit to begin and then adjust the rest after you established your closer. Again, I mean, a two inch tear, I would assume that you've got some sort of a timing issue as well. And so in this yeah. hypothetical situation, you might want to look at the timing and maybe even cheat it one slightly out of time versus the other just to get that tune. Because I mean, there have been Again, very general, very generic. There have been bows in the past that no matter what you did, if the cams were perfectly in time, you wouldn't get a bolt hole. You had to adjust them slightly out of time to get them to fire a clean bolt hole. All right. So on your rest, what do you do if you need to take the rest down? But we'll say, you know, the, the propel or the sink MD, one of your dropaways the arms are already hitting the shelf. So you can't go any, you know, you can't bring the rest down anymore. Right. So one way in the easiest way, if it's not an IMS is just move it back and get it back behind the riser would be the easiest way. Um, you know, if it's one of, if it's an IMS version or a rest that is going to hit it, you could put a pad on the riser, um, I know there are some companies that have built in like a, a soft drop to where they're hitting something softer inside the casing rather than just a hard stop when they come down. Um, so that would be, I mean, you, I mean, you might even have a tip there as well. I mean, in my, in my experience, I've not had that issue, but yeah. I would say something that it, it comes down to hits against or moving it back if possible. Well, that's my, that is my, I never want it to hit the shelf, you know, just because it is added right. noise, even if it is mm -hmm. quiet, even if you add pads and add, uh, yep. you know, like the, the, um, stealth tape, I think is what it's called that the hunting yep. public so big on, no matter what you're adding mm -hmm. to it to make it quieter, it is still added noise. Yeah. Um, so yep. I don't like it to hit anything. That's why I was asking. Um, but I did, I had to yeah. pull my, my rest back on my, uh, on my persist a little bit. Um, to get the rest down far enough for it to shoot. Um, yeah. All right. So we've went and up depending or on down. the rest too. Another rabbit hole there. Before we move on, another potential issue there too. You do want to avoid that because there is the possibility with some rest to have some bounce back. Bouncing um, back. Up, I've yeah. seen slow mo video, slow mo video over the years where they actually hit the riser and then come back up and pop the the tail into the arrow before they're out of the bow. So just another another the reason you do want to keep that in mind. All right, and that's another that's a that's another question. Because there's been times where I thought to myself this has to be contacting the rest. Like it's it's mm -hmm. I'm not getting a consistent tear, it's not um but yep. I don't have a, you know, a, a camera that can produce it in slow motion well enough to see. Right. So, 
how do you ensure that when shooting a drop away, how do you ensure that you're not getting bounced back and hitting your arrow or it's falling fast enough? And, you know, how do you, how do you find those things out? The easiest way that I've done it over the years is actually using foot powder. You can take foot powder and spray the back three quarters of your arrow. Um, The reason that we did it a lot was seeing how the blades on a lizard tongue shooting target were tracking and if they were actually coming, if the arrow was actually coming up off the blade like it should. You know, there are different bows that have a lot of knock pressure coming down. So you, you would have to inherently keep, you, you would use the knock powder to make sure that you weren't hitting veins as that arrow was coming off of those, those um, uh, steel spring rests. But yeah. the same application can be used for a drop away. You can make sure, you can A, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could spray a good portion of the arrow and see when that drop away is falling away. But then B, you can make sure that it's falling away and then you don't have any marks on your veins where it's coming and popping up. Um, yeah, same thing perfect. for, you know, we get into some of this, the tuning and you start using the cable guard, you know, some bows, when they have the cable guard brought in so far, you also can use that foot powder to make sure your veins aren't hitting your cables as they pass through too. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, I've used foot powder for a long time i'll put it on my on the riser of my recurve you know because a lot of times yep. you know if you're getting a left tear a lot of times you you're, you immediately think it's weak but honestly it's too stiff yep. and it's hitting the riser of your you know and kicking it back out so um right foot powder it should be in every bow shop in my opinion so you just mentioned another thing you mentioned roller guards let's just let's start by doing this we'll say we've got the the up and down tear out because that's the easiest in my opinion to, to get yep. out um you know you've moved yep. your rest you've moved your knocking point you've got it shooting uh yep. level and you've got but now you've got a tremendous left hair and or right tear i don't want to just focus yep. on left hair yeah what are all of the options to get out a tear of a bow let's just let's just look at that real quick yeah what all can you move and what all can you change So the first one I call the macro adjustment. It's kind of like if you had a fixed pin site and you were moving the whole housing. So I like to start with the macro thing, and that's going to come with shimming the cams. So every bow on the market is going to have a different method of how you shim the cams. Um, This has been, you know, kind of a developing thing over the last couple of years with the top hat system from Matthews, the easy 220, I think it's 220 shim system from PSE and a handful of others, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on this macro adjustment. Um, you know, in the easy 220, the year prior, Prime had the same thing with the clips. They just didn't have the, the easy pull tool, essentially. But same system, It you have a, a system that's built with different thicknesses of shims, whether they come all on the bow already or you have to purchase kits aftermarket. That's where you're going to start. So, for our example, with a left tear, what you need to do is take that. Oh, this is, I always got, this is where it gets tricky. You got to really think about what you're doing. So with a left tear, you have what typically is a, a weak arrow. So in this scenario with a left tear, you actually want to move those cams out away from the riser. If I remember correctly. Because inherently you're doing the same thing. Yeah. It's tricky. I think that's correct. Because you gotta think about yeah, and you gotta think about what the 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 limbs are doing to the cams in this scenario. Because 
you're actually inducing cam lean when you shim these cams one way or another through the draw cycle. So when you're shimming them to the left, you're putting more leverage on one of the limbs versus the other, which is actually allowing the limb to flex more than it was before, which is at moving your center shot dynamically. So in this scenario with a left turn or with, with a left hair, we're shimming them out, which is then bending those cams in towards the riser because you're putting less leverage on the inside limb and it's allowing it to flex more if, that, if you're tracking. So you're basically taking your cams top and bottom. I can use this bow, for example. I don't know if you can see this. Maybe. Yeah. There we go. That work? Yeah. So mm -hmm. you're taking your top cam and shimming it to the left. Yeah, because you always want to chase the tear. That's right. So a good rule of thumb when shimming your cams is you always want to chase the tear. So if you're sh you have a tail so left tear, you want to shim your cam left. If you have a tail right tear, you want to shim the cam right. So basically you're putting more load on this limb, bending it more and bending this less at full draw. And that's doing the same thing. That also brings us back to a yoke system like this. So the same type of scenario here, you want to start by shimming this back and forth. But when we get to that next step, we've got it down to a half inch, quarter of an inch. Then we can start with on these bows, you're going to have to shim either the cable guard or the rest with a, a yoke system like this. You can actually put twists in here to micro adjust the lean of that top cam. So, so start with your macro you, of shimming and move down to the micro of the rest and the cable guard. Are you, um, so if you shim top cam, do you shim bottom cam? Do you, do you mirror those or on just a, top cam, just yes. bottom cam? Yep. Yep. And the one thing, and I will preface this, you do have to keep in mind you on a binary system specifically you have to make sure that you don't over shim and miss your draw stops and or on a system like a PSC, your cam hits the yoke as it cycles through. So as your cam is coming over, if you were to shim this too far, you might lean that cam too much one way or another, and you'll either miss the cable with your draw stop and lock the bow up, or you can hit this, this yoke system like this on a PSC or a Matthews where your cam is actually rubbing on the inside of this yoke and causing damage there too. So you, there is a finite amount that you can move it on certain bows. Well, most bows, cause you have to make sure that you're hitting that stop. So once you shim these cams, don't just put, take it out of the bow and draw it back with your hands. Make sure you're using a draw board, watching it closely, making sure that it hits those stops. So you don't, you know, potentially damage you the bow or hurt yourself in the process. So two questions. Let's start with the cam lean issue because 10 years yeah, ago, we, we got a lot to unpack there. <laughs> 10, 10 years ago, you walked into a bow shop and they were like, Oh dude, you got a cam lean. You know that everybody yeah. just immediately thought if your cams are leaning, your bow sucks. So yeah. you basically just told people to start by leaning your cams. A to, to a degree. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So walk us through the, yeah. the misconception that cam lean is bad, but then B, when does it get bad? You know, like when is too far yeah. too far? 
Right. In a perfect world, if you can eliminate cam lean and have the power stroke perfectly behind the arrow where it's spitting it downrange and getting a bullet hole, that's where you want to be. And, you know, there are companies that have tried to get there and develop things specifically trying to take the cam lean aspect out of it where you're still getting good arrow flight in a bullet hole. So in a perfect world, no cam lean is correct. Like that's what you want to have happen. But with where we are right now and the, the loads on the cab- the cams with the cable guard and just being able to get an arrow to spit straight out of the bow, a little bit of cam lean is not a bad thing. It, it, it actually helps. Um, and there's a whole rabbit hole of, there's a whole rabbit hole that we could dive down with there. But for the sake of this argument, a little bit of cam lean is a good thing if it helps you get a good bolt hole and you get good groups at distance down the road. So <clears throat> at what point do you start shimming the cams and, you know, say we do have the left hair. So you're, you're adding shims to the right side to move it left. Mm-hmm. Yep. At what point do you look at that and go, we've got to try something else because I have shimmed this too much. I, I would say obviously missing the cam or missing the cable with your draw stop is the big one. I mean, that's the big major red flag. The other one is, I mean, if you take an arrow and you run it down the side of the string and it is just, you've got a huge gap there where it's obviously you've got a ton of cam lean. I would say that you've got other issues, whether it be bearings, it could be a limb issue. Like there's some other underlying issue there that's being exaggerated through paper and through your tune. So um, I would say that a good start would be, you know, shim it a little. A little goes a long way shimming cams. I mean, a a little goes a really long way, especially with some different systems that are more impacted by that than others. Um, and that's the thing too, is like some, some bows require less shimming than others. I've seen some bows that take two to three times the same amount of distance shimmed to get the same result through paper. So same arrow, same poundage, draw length, et cetera. So a little goes a long way for most systems. And I would start with a little and just incrementally move it. And then once you get it close, then use your micro adjustments that we talked about guys if you've been around hunting at all you've probably heard of a little company called muddy i have learned that if it says muddy on it i can trust it from tree stands ground blinds trail cameras to all the accessories if it says muddy it's a name i can trust i love their tree stands i love their ground blinds i love their trail cameras the new merge and their morph cellular trail cameras they're phenomenal especially when you pair them up with a solar panel and they last forever guys I would encourage you to check out Muddy uh, for all your tree stands, ground blinds, all the accessories, bow hangers, uh, harnesses, everything tree stands or ground blinds or accessories related. If it says Muddy, I know that I can trust it. Guys, I know the new Rage. The new Rage is these super light tree stands that cost like 400 bucks, and I'm like, well, <laughs> why would I spend 400 bucks on one when I can spend 100 and get four tree stands um, that are all going to perform. They're all going to be safe. They're all going to be comfortable. Guys, Muddy is the gold standard, in my opinion, uh, for what a tree stand and a ground blind and trail cameras should offer you. So guys, go check them out. They are phenomenal. And I promise you, if you're shopping at a Dick's Academy, Bass Pro, Cabela's, anywhere, if it says Muddy, I promise you it's a name you can trust. So I have heard it said, 
let's just and and you can answer this however you want. I have heard it said if you buy a bear, you're gonna have to shim the cams. And I've heard it said uh, if you buy a Hoyt, you gotta shim the yeah. cams. You know, I've heard I've heard it I said was... about all these different brands. So if that is remotely true, or say ninety percent of bows need to be shimmed, you know, say say ninety percent of this one bow, people gotta shim it to get it to tune. Why not shim it mm -hmm. from the factory? You know what I mean? Well, there's so many things that go into that. You know, each shooter is going to put different pressure in the grip than another guy does. They're going to come through the shot in the back end different than somebody else does. So there's a lot of things that you can't anticipate from a broad standpoint going through the shop. I know, you know, through different developing and different companies, we actually did a pool. We would take everybody in the office, set it at a nominal draw length, have everybody shoot it through paper, and then we would adjust it until we got the most people in the factory with a standard hunting arrow that you would buy in the shop and a standard setup center shot. And we would shim the cams from the factory and or design the bows that the masses could shoot rather than just a nominal setting that, you know, was all drafted in CAD. So um, I would say that most companies do their best, but you also have variance in the machining and then the process of making the bows too. It is impossible. I, I shouldn't say impossible, but it's not feasible from a financial standpoint to make every single limb exactly the same because you're going to have so much scrap when you build the different deflections for each limb because that, that impacts how the arrow flight does just as much as shimming the cams because you could have a, you know, a limb on the right sides that both are you know, identical, but then on the left side, you have one that's slightly weaker than the other. So there, there's a lot that goes into this, you know, there's a lot of, you know, variables just in the buildup of every bow specifically, you know, as time's gone on, we've built bows more consistent, but that's just because machining processes have gotten better, but there's still lies that where, you know, it's impossible to build every single bow exactly the same. Yeah. So, and, and I've heard it said too, um, well, I, I, I'll just, I'll name names. Uh, Alan Bolin, who is the host of Hoyt's podcast. Uh, he was just doing a video kind of a video series, kind of the same deal about building his bow. Um, and he mentioned that he wants to always shim the cams basically to get the bow to tune because he never likes to move his rest because he wants the arrow perfectly straight. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So is there, do you do, I mean, where, again, where does that line get drawn? Like, okay, well, right. I want the arrow somewhat in the center, you know, somewhat perfectly center shot. Yeah. Versus well, shimming the cams versus, I, the I problem, mean, again, I know it's a I lot mean, to unpack, but. Yeah. And, and I don't want to go. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that that I see is when you shim the cams, you're effectively shifting the center shot too. If you are physically moving those cams in relation to the riser, your center shot isn't the same spot. So like, for example, the 13 16 number, it's going to be different if you shim those cams a hundred thousandths one direction. Your arrow is in, in theory shifting a hundred thousandths on the tail 
which then your center shot isn't going to be the same either because it's coming in at a different angle towards that riser. So I would say that it's a combination. And the way that I've always done center shot and where I've start is I've never measured with a pair of calipers. I've actually taken the bow, look at the string from the rear like this and line it up with the back side of the cam. And then I would draw a line to my rest from that and use a three point system. So string to the back side of the cam and then to the rest. And that would get where my center shot is, regardless of where the, sh the cam is shipped. Okay, all right. Because Back you're, you're getting the center shot of the, the system rather than do, the right. Do that one more time. All right, so you're not, you don't yeah. put it on and measure 13 sixteenths. I don't. So I would take, and this is actually going to be easier for you to see. So I would take the string and then line it up with my eyes to the back side of this cam. So where the cam yep. is rolling around, so I would take the string, line it up to here, and then I would set my rest off of that, just kind of like a, a rear sight, front sight rest. And that's where I would get it. Because you you can measure those until you're blue in the face, but you're going to inherently adjust it minutely once you get it close down the road. It's going to happen. A bear shaft downrange at 20 yards even if you're hitting a bullet hole through paper, there's a good chance you're going to have to shim it or chase it with your rest just inherently down the road. So that's how I've always started. And that's been my, my starting point is string to the backside of the cam to the rest, shoot it through paper, get it close, shimming, doing whatever. I mean, and it's a process. So like you would start there and then if you have to shim, then you'd have to do that process again to make sure that you're back to center center shot with the system of the cams rather than against the riser. Right. So when you look down the bow, it, when you look down the bow, you get the string lined up with the back side of the cam. Do you then line up mm -hmm. the arrow with the string as well? Is that how you're yeah, getting that yeah, straight? Yeah. So I would put an, I would put an arrow on the rest and use that. So I would have my string center of the arrow center of the cam. That would be my three point system that gotcha. I use to line up the rest. Yep. Now, after you do that, do you measure mm -hmm. to know that distance? You can, no? but like I was just touching on, like it, it's probably going to move once you go to the fine tuning down the road. So typically it's in that three sixteenths to three quarters of an inch range somewhere in there. Um, but no, I, I never put a tape on it just because I know that it's a dynamic system and it's going to change when I go to tune it. Gotcha. All right. So we've got a two inch left here. We have shimmed the cams just a little bit and now it's slightly yep. just still just a little bit left. What, yep. what are you doing now? Yeah. So I would, I would move to the cable guard if it's a possibility, but then ultimately like I would cheat the rest in or out in this, this case with a left hair, I would cheat the rest in. And that's where I would move to next. So you don't. So why would you choose cable guard over rest, rest over cable guard and or yokes? If you've got yokes, um, wh what would yeah, cause you it, to go it, to one of those things next? In a, a single cam or a hybrid system, I would go to I would go to yokes next before I would move my rest. And then if I'm on a binary system, I would go to my my rest next. It, I mean, it just depends on what where the cable load is 
if a cable guard is all the way maxed out in a position, um, you know, I'd probably move it in a little bit. But most of the time, in my experience, I've had the best experience shooting bows that have more cable guard versus less just because it's a constant force in the system fighting torque one way or another. In my, in my experience, that's what bows I've had that have shot the best. But, um, you know, it's definitely a tool that can be used. And again, you want to keep in mind, if you do bring that cable guard in, you are, you're also running into the possibility of hitting the cables with your veins, depending on, you know, how much of a gap you have where they're sitting. So, so I would start with also, the rest. You've also mentioned a couple things that I want to go back and teach people what it even means. Because you mm -hmm. said binary, single cam, you know, hybrid yeah. cam. What do you even mean? Like, how, how, how does somebody looking at their bow even know, is this binary? Is this um, yeah. hybrid? Is this, obviously, single cam is really easy to tell, but... Um, yeah. How do they, how do you even know that? Yeah. So uh, we'll start with a hybrid or a single cam because these two are both going to be pretty close to each other as far as you know when you take a look at them what they look like. Um, this is a single cam. You have a single cam on the bottom that is putting the power into the system. You've got take up in this and you've got you know let out, but then your bus cable is slaved to the limbs. So the same thing would also be true with a hybrid cam system. You have the bus cable slaved to the limbs, but you also have a take up on both of the top and bottom. So you're adding energy into the system with both the top and the bottom. And then inversely, when you look at a, a binary system or a two cam system, the strings and cables are all hooked to just the cams themselves. And you've got to take up and a let out cable on both the top and bottom, putting energy into the system. So this is going to be the highest performing out of the three. I have seen, you know, hybrid cams, you know, rival this, but they do that with a lower let off than what a binary cam can. So a binary allows you to get, you know, the high speeds, the high performance while also allowing 80 to 90% let off where to get that same kind of performance out of the hybrid system, you'd have to be in that 70 to 75%. So the, the PSE that you were just holding that had a yoke on it, but it wasn't a single cam. So that would be considered a hybrid cam. So this one is still technically a binary system because the yoke system is still hooked to the cam. So your, your, your yokes on the PSE are technically your let off or your, um, your let out cables and they're still hooked up to the let out tracks on the cams. And then you have a single take up cable. It's just, it's kind of like the primes when they had the split on the string. Those are still, they have a yoke technically, but it's on the string. So it's the same concept here. You just had, instead of having a yoke on the string or on the, they're still hooked to the cam and not slave to the limb. So I don't, I can't tell. Do you have an Alaskan XT? Um, I've got, I've got one. I don't have one on the table. I've got one across the room. <laughs> Cause that would be considered, that would be a hybrid cam. Correct. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I think that's the only cam we haven't shown. 
Um, yeah, because like be Caleb was one. saying that, because like Caleb was saying that on that on that PSE, you can see the yoke, but it's connected to the cam, just like on on the persist that he was just showing. Uh, there's just a yoke right. in it. Now on a like if you look at an Alaskan XT, it's gonna have that yoke yeah. going up, but it's gonna be connected behind the the pins of the of the on the limbs. Right. Yeah, it's still gonna be. It's like a single cam. The 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 bus cable or the the let out cable on the uh, or actually it's the take up cable on the cam is slave to the the limbs. Gotcha. All right. So yep. if you does that change. Does that change depending on what what bow you're shooting, single, hybrid, binary? Does that change um, the steps you've taken thus far? Is that going to change the process you've taken? The only step that it will change is when we get to the micro, and instead of moving the rest, we might tweak with the bus cables on a hybrid or a single cam before we move to the rest. Okay, so we've got. Yep. We've we've went from a two inch tear by shimming the cams. We've got it, you know, down to a yep. uh, eighth inch tear. We'll say. Um, and this yep. really, I don't want you to focus on the left tear part um, because everything we've said thus far can go for a right tear as well. Right. Um, you would just shim mm-hmm. it the other way. Um, so either way, we've taken a two inch tear and we've got down to an eighth inch tear um, on a hybrid cam or on a binary cam. You're going to play with what next? Yep. Yeah. On a binary or hybrid, then, or on a single or a binary, I'm going to play with the, the yeah. cable or the, the bus cable. Yep. So just like we're doing the same thing as what we were doing with shimming the cams, we're moving the string track in or out and adding a little bit of lean to the top cam. So same thing here with a left hair, we're going to add it to the outside yoke to move that or lean that cam in towards the riser. Um, and a little goes a long way. Same thing as shimming. You want to start small and work your way up and make sure that you're not going to derail the boat. Like you never, you never even want to get close to where you have so much lean that this string track might come out of the track or you miss the stop one way or the other. But a little goes a long way and I would start with a full twist, half twist, and just incrementally work my way up. You're going to shoot a lot of arrows. If you if you started with a two-inch tear, you're going to shoot a lot of arrows to get it where it's shootable, just inherently. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and you have said it basically on every step of the way so far, but when it comes to tuning, there are no big movements. Like, let's just let's just get no. that out there. There are yep. no big movements yeah. when it comes to, to, to tuning a bow. Even if you've got a Correct. two inch tear, you would be amazed at what at what moving your rest. I mean, a sixteenth yep. of an inch will do. A thirty second of an inch will do. Yep. You'll be amazed yep. at what that does. Now, Caleb, and maybe something we should have hit on at first. Well, no, 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 no. I, I like the steps we're going down. Um, <clears throat> at what point? So you've done all this stuff, and you just can't get tear out. Two questions. At what point are you going to visit yourself saying, man, maybe I'm just, mm-hmm. maybe I'm putting way too much torque on the bow with my grip yeah. and or revisit the arrow build. At what point do you have to look at this and say, okay, there's something, there's an underlying issue here. Right. Yeah. And the, there's two ways or three different things that I think if you get to where we're at now and you just can't get 
a quarter to a half inch out. Like it just, it will not happen. There's like three things that could potentially be going on. Either you have vein contact or arrow contact somewhere and it's kicking that arrow and you have everything maxed to the direction that you're wanting to move and shim and shift the rest. Like if you're still having a prevailing tear, there's a good chance there's contact or there might be something mechanically wrong with the bow or, you know, going back to the two inch tear to start, you might be torquing the bow, but typically in my experience, if you see a two inch tear, it's not typically that it's when you get to that three to four, five inch tear, you really have somebody death grip in the bow or they're putting a lot of thumb or a lot of knuckle pressure into the riser. It could be face contact. Like there's a lot of things that go into that. And, you know, if you get down to this, the nitty gritty, it could be one of those things, but I would say that it's more than likely going to be contact or, you know, something mechanically going awry with your setup. Also, if it's, if it's consistent, I mean, if, if, it if consistently you have an eighth inch left, yeah, it's, you're probably not torquing the bow. Like it's probably not yeah, you right, because you're right. consistently shooting it good. Right. Um, all right. So we've gotten down to that, to that eighth inch and they just can't get it out. What is the first mm-hmm. thing you're going to look at? Are you going to first, you know, foot spray the arrow? Or are you going to first, you know, revisit the arrow build altogether? What's the first thing you're going to look at with that? Yeah, I would probably start with contact just because that's the easiest thing to rule out. Um, you know, beyond contact, it it really gets down to a guessing game. So, yeah, um, you you could look at shooting a different arrow through it, like grab a completely different arrow build that should be, you know, drastically the other way. And then if it shoots through and goes the same direction, then you got to rule out, you know, it, it, it's something else in that system rather than just because if everything is free and clear, your arrows are tracking out, they're not hitting anything, you're not torquing the bow, and you say you have a weak tear and you shoot the world's stiffest arrow through it and it pops the same way, there's something going on with the system that isn't you. So say you pop it through and it goes the other way, then you know that you're close and you just got to keep going if you can, or there's something where you're limited by the system and you got to you know contact the manufacturer and go from there. Yeah, because you know what's because sometimes when you switch arrows completely, you're going to learn that that bow just likes a different arrow um, Mm -hmm. as well. You know, like on my persist, perfect example. Uh, I was trying to tune it to an arrow that should have been, you know, spined perfectly. And then I just bump up to an arrow that was spined too weak. Um, It was a Mm -hmm. 300 spine with 100 grain outsert and 100 grain broadhead. So 200 grains out front. Yeah. <clears throat> should have been too weak and it just shoots it perfect yeah. a perfect bullet hole i mean it just loved yeah. that arrow um so there are going to be bows that just like a little bit of a stiffer and or weaker arrow so sometimes yeah. just trading arrows out like that is going to teach you what your bow likes and what it doesn't like mm-hmm. yeah and this is i mean that again you you opened up the possibility to go into a whole can of worms um every cam system puts a different amount of energy into the arrow at the impulse of the shot. So every cam system, every bow is going to act a little bit differently. Um, and you really start opening up 
yourself for a lot of stuff when you do go outside of the regular, I guess, when it comes to aero build, when you start putting a lot of weight up front, you know, you're trying to push that arrow with something that's heavy stationary. I mean, there's a good chance if the bow is not perfectly tracking behind or the arrow, the spine isn't perfectly stiff enough, you know, it's going to try and push that knock around a stationary weight that's out there. Just, you know, pure physics, but you know, there's a lot of things. Every bow is going to act different back to the point and it's going to take a little bit different every cam system. And even within the cam systems, you know, one bow might change or might do something a little bit different just depending on limb deflections and how the bow is built up inherently too. So Now that's a good question with heavy arrows and or light arrows or fast setups or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Have there been anything over the years that you have learned that's just kind of like, you know, if it's got a lot of weight out front, then you need to run a higher knock point or lower knock point. You know, has there any, yeah. has there been any kind of like set rule on if you're going to try this, go ahead and know you're going to need to do something like this? Yeah. You know, I think this comes down to a lot of personal truths. <laughs> you know, what yeah. works for each individual, you know, what works for me might not work for somebody else. Um, you know, with, you know, higher FOC, typically I like to see a little bit bigger of a vein setup, you know, maybe more steering in the back, but I've always, for my personal stuff, I've always leaned towards more of a balanced setup. Like I max out 150 with inserts and point weight typically. And I typically like to be anywhere from 450 to 500 on a hunting arrow, regardless of what I'm hunting. Um, yeah. That's just where I typically have landed that's what works the best for me. That's what I've seen the best accuracy out of for me per personally. But that's not that's not true for everybody. Like everybody's system is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. I can say that, and we've talked a lot about this, I can say that with compounds in particular, 500 is like the sweet spot for me. I've tried to go past it and your downrange mm -hmm. just sucks. I mean... Yep. You know, I've pushed that needle and I've hunted with 650 grains before. And it's like, dude, at 27 yards, mm -hmm. the arrow had time to duck. The, the deer had time to duck and yeah. come back up and do a 360 spin before I hit it. Like, yeah. you know, I've been I've been on both sides of that coin. And I've been on the, you mm -hmm. know, 10 years ago, dude, everybody wanted to shoot a 300, uh, 300 grain arrow so they could get, you know, the fastest bow. And then it just hits the deer and bounces right. off the shoulder. Like, I've been on both ends right. of that. Um, yeah. and, and like you, I have found that 500 just works really well. Um, yeah. and the yeah, same is true you when you're going to come returns to, either way. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And the, the same is true when you're, when you get down to tuning a bow, like you are going to learn over the years of doing this, you're going to learn, you know what? My bows tend to like to be, you know, outside of center a little more or inside of center a little mm -hmm. more. My bows tend to be, For sure. you know, pretty much the last 10 bows I've bought, I've had to shim to the left. You know, you're going to learn those types yep. of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's uh, because, and, again, it's all shooter preference. Yeah. And not to throw a, a huge monkey in the wrench, too. I mean, I've had cam systems that go completely against what charts say. You know, there was a handful of years there where a left tear through paper for me was a stiff arrow and a right tear through paper was a weak arrow. So there, there's going to be a point where you might run into a situation where you just got to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Like it, it, there's yeah. a lot of hypotheticals behind tuning bows 
And when we start throwing all the different attributes of aerospine, heavy FOC, light FOC, speed, you know, throw a broadhead on the front of a light arrow versus a heavier arrow. Like there, there's a lot of things there. You're going to open yourself up to stuff that's more critical to the tune and how you shoot the bow yourself too. So two questions. Are you doing all of this bear shaft? Or are you doing all of this with fletched arrows? I would say a combination. Um, I typically start with a fletched arrow just because you could get a bow that is going to shoot a two foot left tear through paper or, you know, miss the target at 20 yards with a bear shaft. So I usually start with a stiff arrow just to make sure I'm in the ballpark and there's nothing majorly going around wrong with the bow. So I don't, A, damage the arrow, damage the range or the target, whatever I'm shooting through. You know, I've seen it where somebody shoots a bear shaft through paper and it tunes so bad that the arrow actually hits the frame that the paper stand is on and snap the arrow in half. So yeah. I usually start with a flet fletched arrow. I think that gets you as close to, you know, a, we talked about weight in the rear of the arrow being stiff, and I usually start there. I start with a fletched arrow, get it close, and then shift to a, a bear shaft. So that it's kind of like a, a mixed system. Yep. Yeah, I can say this because uh, my wife never listens to the podcast, um, but I, my bow shop area is in my garage, and I have sent one arrow in all my time through the garage door. Um she doesn't know about it because it's been cocked and sealed and repainted and you can't even see it anymore, but, um, <laughs> there's still a hole there technically. Um, yeah. And, and it was for that reason started with a bear shaft and it was just so far out of tune that first shot that the bear shaft was, was off target. Um, yeah. so question two, at what distances are you trying to paper tune? Um, I've always heard, or I, I've always used kind of like that, eight to 10 feet range is kind of where I've always stood, but I've heard, you know, start at three yards, well, three feet and work your way back to like 12 feet and just kind of find, because at some point, the further you get back, if you're shooting a fletched arrow through there, it's, uh, it's going to correct the arrow and shoot a bullet hole through paper eventually as you move back. I mean, we've all seen the guys that have these bows that are just terribly tuned and they're shooting long distances, slow-mo and the bow just comes out the arrow comes out and then it corrects itself and hits the target. So that is going to happen with paper tuning inherently. So you're trying to find that, that magic distance where it's coming out of the bow, it's doing what it's doing coming out of the bow and then correcting, but you can also be too close too. So I, I've always been like that eight, eight to 10 feet typically. Well, and that's why I like to switch to bear shafts. You know, just like you said, you want to, mm -hmm. after you get it somewhat shooting correctly, I switch to bear shafts. Yep. I'm going to add tape to the back. That way it perfectly yep. mimics the weight of the, the wrapping vein I'm going to shoot. Um, but mm -hmm. then I want to shoot bear shafts because I know there is no veins correcting the flight of that arrow. Even at, yep. you know, you say I back up to nine yards. Um, and, and here's why. Here's what I here's what I figured out that if I shoot a fletched arrow, you know, at, at four feet and I have a perfect bullet hole, I might go to a bear shaft at, at, you know, seven, eight, nine feet. And I've got an inch mm -hmm. left hair. Um, because there's nothing correcting the flight of that arrow. There's nothing f correcting how that arrow is coming out. So that's what I like to do. Exactly. Like you just said, I want to make sure I'm hitting the target yep. with fletched. 
I want to make sure it's yep. somewhat close. Um, and then I'm yep. going to switch to bear shafts and go back to nine, 10 yards, 12 yards, yep. really honestly, however far I can get in the garage. Uh, because yep. I know that if I get that bear shaft shooting perfect bullet holes at, you know, 18 feet or, you know, 12 mm -hmm. feet, however far I can get back, then it's going to make the next step of our tuning process where we go outside and start group tuning even easier. Yeah. 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 And I would say too, before we even get to group tuning, bear or paper tuning is just leading us to bear shaft tuning in my process. And you would use the same ideas that you use through paper when you're bear shaft tuning. So I take a fletched arrow and a, a bear shaft and I shoot fletched arrow at 20 yards, bear shaft at 20 yards. And I use the same process that you do with paper. So like in our scenario where it's a high left tear, if I have a shaft, bear shaft that is right and kicked up, that is telling me it is a, a high left tear through paper or a weak arrow. So I would then use my micro adjustments because at this point I've already shot through paper and it should be pretty close. So then back at 20 yards, I would then use my micro adjustments to bring that bear shaft up to, to where it's close and or touching that fletched arrow in the target. And next episode, uh, we're really going to get into group tuning, bear shaft tuning, yep. all of our, our yep. fine micro tuning, um, yep. and sighting in, uh, because what happens is, you know, I've seen guys, they sight in their bows, they get them, they get them shooting good and then they tune and it's like, well, now you got to reside in your bow. Um, right. so, uh, we're going to do that side in our final side in is the last step. Um, now you want to be somewhat sided into group tune, but we'll mm -hmm. get there. Guys, if you have been around archery much at all, then you've probably heard the name Lancaster. And for good reason, Lancaster Archery is well-known worldwide, and they have an incredible reputation worldwide. Why? Because they're archery experts on all things archery, from bow hunting to 3D shooting, from recurves to compounds. If it's archery, they not only sell the products, but they know the products. Guys, Lancaster is your one-stop shop for all things bear archery, every compound, recurve, all the equipment. But outside of bear, they have everything you need from arrows and broadheads to, to bow building equipment, everything. Guys, Lancaster Archery is a name that you can absolutely trust. They put out some of the best information that you can find just about anywhere. So I would highly encourage you to not only shop at LancasterArchery.com because you can trust in the products you're buying because they know about the products that you're buying, but also I would highly encourage you to check out all of their resources, not only on their website, but on their YouTube channel because they are a wealth of knowledge on all things archery. So guys, check out Lancaster Archery. They're your one-stop shop, not only for all of the equipment that you could ever possibly need that's archery-related, but also all of the information that you would ever need that is archery related, LancasterArchery.com. Go check them out. Um, so we have covered paper tuning. Uh, we've got your bow shooting 98% good. So now we're going to head outside for next episode and, and start walk back tuning, group back tuning, bear shaft tuning, whatever you want to do or call it. Um, and then our final side in. So guys stay tuned for next week for our last episode of the series uh, where we talk about that micro fine-tuning adjustments, and final side in. But guys, thank you so much for listening. Y'all have a fantastic week.